The Slate Culture Gab Fest is sponsored by Harry's, the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for $5 off your first purchase with the promo code CULTURE. That's harrys.com and the promo code CULTURE. And by Braintree. If you're working on a mobile app and searching for a simple payment solution, check out Braintree. With one simple integration, you can offer your customers every way to pay, period. To learn more and for your first $50,000 in transactions fee-free, go to braintreepayments.com culture. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest 911's Leitmotif Edition. It's Wednesday, August 18th, 2015. On today's show, Show Me a Hero is the new limited series from David Simon. Critics are saying the six-part HBO show reaches the heights of Simon's most famous creation, The Wire. And then, straight out of Compton, it's the new band biopic of West Coast rap pioneers NWA. And we'll discuss the film, the music, and what it means that a gangsta movie absolutely crushed it at the box office. And finally, is working at Amazon a Darwinian struggle designed to squeeze every drop out of its employees, including the last drop of their humanity? Jeff Bezos emphatically says no. A Times investigation into the company seems to suggest yes. Joining me today is uh, Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. And I should say that joining us this week, uh, Dana's still out on break, but joining us this week is a kind of rotating band of uh, experts. We've got Jamel Bowie, John Swansburg, and Allison Benedict, uh, each joining us on a separate topic. Yeah, and in fact, we're going to take advantage of Allison Benedict's stint with us to do some culture triumphs and fails in our Slate Plus segment, borrowing from her mom and dad are fighting motif. Cool. All right. Looking forward to it. All right. Any business? Yeah, well, there's still tickets available to our live show in Chicago at the Music Box Theater on Tuesday, September 22nd. We are super excited to come to Chicago. Can you call it the Windy City or is that just like incredibly lame? I think it's probably super lame. But we're going there and uh, we hope to see you at the Music Box. You can get tickets to that event at slate.com slash culture chai or culture shy. I think I was chided or shided on the Internet for pronouncing that wrong so that's c-u-l-t-u-r-e-c-h-i all right thanks julia moving on show me a hero is the new hbo limited series created by david simon who's best known of course for the wire the show is based on a book by lisa belkin the new york times reporter and it's about an infamous public housing battle in yonkers new york in which a predominantly white working class suburb was court ordered to desegregate and build 200 units of low income and therefore predominantly black housing. Shows written by Simon, co-written by William Zorzi, who is a wire veteran, one of the few names from that show I don't recognize, I'm ashamed to say. The episodes are directed by Paul Haggis. It has a wide and various cast. We'll get into that, but let's listen to a clip. First item then. Resolution number 69, Mayor Martinelli and Vice Mayor Oxman sponsoring. In the matter of court-ordered housing in the case of the United States and the NAACP versus City of Yonkers. Is there any discussion? Yeah, something I'd like to discuss, Mr. Mayor. I'd like to discuss the fact that what this judge is doing is nothing short of social engineering by someone by someone who doesn't live anywhere near our neighborhood. 
is, is that we lost that lawsuit. The decision before us tonight is clear. The choice is to be responsible to the people who elected us. Well, I, for one, am not going to be intimidated by this judge on what I believe in. We can't become a city that is both in contempt and bankrupt. The issue is that someone is going to put together a housing plan. Do you want to have a say in it? Do we want to make sure that the plan is a moderate one? Because that is the only issue. All right, well, to discuss the show, we're joined by uh, Jamel Bowie. Jamel, I'm very pleased to announce that you have a new job title, don't you? I do. Uh, You are now the chief political correspondent of Slate.com. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Welcome back to the show. Uh, There is a lot to get a hold of here, given that this is both David Simon and a very interesting and compelling slice of American history. Why don't we start first with Simon? Tell us um, where you stand on The Wire and what you make uh, of this new show of vis-a-vis that older one. Yeah, I am a big fan of The Wire. Like, I, I think I watched it in college first um, and then watched it again after college, just sort of trying to revisit it in light of recent events, of especially the events of last year um, in Ferguson. I think The Wire is a a wonderful piece of television. I think it is politically um, very sharp and very astute. I think it gets to themes that are very much in the news right now from sort of the systemic nature of inequality to the extent to which unequal systems eventually reach wider and wider groups of people. And so when I heard about this series, knowing that David Simon had done it and knowing that it covers, you know, familiar territory as The Wire, as opposed to his other series like Generation Kill or or Treme, which are a bit different in their scope and in their focus. Um, I was pretty excited to check it out. And I've not been disappointed in the intellectual content of the series thus far. It really captures the dynamics and the fears of housing integration and what happens to people in communities um, both white and black uh, and Latino, when they are segregated and how that shapes political forces and political wins. It's very, it's very fascinating and, again, very, very timely. Mm, absolutely. Um, Julia, it does seem as though David Simon has at last found a canvas adequate to his talents as Baltimore was uh, in The Wire. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of a little bit like doing a, a very high degree of difficulty dive or something. It's like, okay, can you take a housing policy debate that, as Jamel says, is incredibly resonant with the news and conversation that we've been having nationally about racial inequality over the past year, but still is fundamentally a drama that takes place in a city council chamber. Um, That scene we heard a clip from with the gavel banging and the shouting that, that there's basically a scene like that every 12 minutes in the show throughout the first two episodes that have aired thus far. Uh, and they're good. They have drama They're They have some interest, but it is a, you feel a little bit like you're on the merry-go-round of the city council meeting. And I think this is a little bit of a tougher road for Simon and his team than The Wire in terms of hooking people who are not already thrilled to the notion of watching a six-hour miniseries about housing integration. You know, some of the things that hooked people into The Wire at the beginning, and The Wire itself is famously, you know, took a few episodes to get into, but there are warring teams of drug dealers and gangsters. There are crimes. There are mysterious sets of murders that are being pursued. This is really a character piece around 
a very unheroic hero. It seems that Nick Wasiska, you know, the very young mayor of Yonkers, played by the wonderful Oscar Isaac, is, you know, starts out taking advantage of being on the wrong side of this integration fight, capitalizes on discontent with the prior mayor who is sort of acquiescing to the ruling of the judge and attempting to force the the building of low-income housing in in more wealthier white neighborhoods. And, you know, we're a third of the way through and we haven't quite got to him realizing exactly how gross that political force is that has propelled him to power. And he's only beginning to deal in a very practical way with the fact that he does need to somehow get the city to accede to the rulings of the judge. So it's a little bit of a slow burn, I think, even compared to the famously slow burn wire. I'm definitely excited to watch more and stick it out, but um, it's a little dry. No? Mm. I have to say that I'm completely, completely hooked and was almost from the beginning, but that may be due to some oddity in my own character. But Oscar Isaac, early on, his character says it's better to lose big than to lose small. And it seems to me this could be Simon's own credo. I mean, he really wants to, he wants to, it seems to me, he wants to get at these intractable American tragedies from every conceivable point of view. And But what I love is that when he goes big, he, he gets there by first going small, that he seems to know where life is actually lived like it's in you know municipal courts and in washrooms and he just has a feel for these places where male power transacts in a way that I think few other American television filmmakers really really do. Jamel, why don't we get into a little bit about why this is possibly a huge moment in in recent American history at least and and in the civil rights battle. Am I right in thinking that in part it's because there was a phase of the civil rights battle for which it was very easy for every right-thinking consciousness and conscience to come around on, which was you know school school desegregation, the right to vote. It was very easy to demonize an you know intractably racist South, and that the housing battle really brought civil rights not only to the North but also to the American suburb in a way that threatened the self-image of a lot of middle-class American whites who might have said that they, and sworn up and down that they were not racist, but nonetheless felt for possibly racist reasons that they had to draw some kind of a line in the sand. I I think that's right. I think about the housing part of the civil rights battles that if you had asked I think anyone in 1965, whether you even get something like the Fair Housing Act, um, which comes three years later and is in some in some some sense very far reaching, mainly that it's a, a fir- it's the federal government affirmatively saying school desegregation is not okay, but it doesn't necessarily have the equipment to make that um, or housing segregation, it doesn't have the equipment to make that a reality. In 65, I don't think anyone would have said that that's, a pos- that's possible. There's the famous anecdote about King going to Chicago to march for housing integration and finding sort of the worst and most racist perception he's ever, he's ever gotten. And that's in part because I'm trying to think of a way to explain this in sort of a, a sentence or two-sentence capsule. But housing in the United States has always, um, since there's been a national housing market, um, beginning in the 1930s, it's always been strictly racially defined. There's always been housing for whites and housing for blacks. Specifically, the whole notion of good housing and good neighborhoods is heavily tied to race and racial hierarchy. And so when you begin to say the battle isn't done unless 
black Americans can freely purchase homes uh, wherever they please and uh, until the federal government begins to make up and compensate for its long uh, exclusion discrimination against black Americans in housing markets, when you begin to, to, to push that, it's not, it's not even just like an, an ask for resources, which is always tough. It's really, it really is hitting at the self-image of a lot of Americans who see their worth and their value and their conception of the good tied up in their housing in their neighborhoods. And while they're willing to get to grant um, or support the drive for equal political rights, the idea that their, quote, good housing and their, quote, good neighborhoods are in fact not good, um, are in fact unequal and racist and need to be changed is a, frankly offensive to people, even now. Mm. And and quickly, uh, Julia, before we turn back to you, Jamel, I thought one of the most heartbreaking moments in the first episode is when a black double NAACP lawyer says to a white activist that he doesn't, he, the black lawyer, the black civil rights lawyer does not want this battle because it is going to be too explosive and the backlash against it will be so powerful. And in fact, racism may be so intractable that whites and blacks living side by side should no longer be a vision of the black civil rights movement. I also thought that was a crushing moment, and in particular because I'm not going to pretend like I haven't also had that thought at times, that when you witness the kind of extreme and entrenched reaction against trying to integrate not just housing, but schools, it's sort of hard to avoid the feeling that, you know, is this even worth the trouble? Yeah, I mean, I do think, Steve, your point that housing is is a particular flashpoint on these issues is true, but I'd, I don't think it's fair to say that school integration was was easy, certainly in the North. I, I never said that school integration was easy. <laughs> Please, come on. Didn't you say something like that? No, I what I like said was, what setup. I said was, in the oh, or let me put a finer point on it, in the aftermath of the Brown decision, it was very easy for Northeast liberals to say, I mean, busing was a huge crisis in the Northeast. So the actual desegregation of schools was almost as politically incendiary as desegregating housing. But you will note that we have gone a long way to desegregating schools, and we've gone virtually taken no steps in the direction of de jure desegregation of um, American neighborhoods. Um, I think it's worth saying, though, that because housing still remains extremely segregated, that the past 20 years has seen backwards movement on school desegregation and that across the country, localities and cities have either affirmatively abandoned plans for integration or attempts at integration or have just allowed resegregation to continue uh, without any sort of obstacle. So where do we think that leaves us in terms of this show? I mean, one of the things that is striking about David Simon's work, I think generally, is that it can be both heartening and deeply depressing at the same time. And I think the way that it does that is by showcasing with very nuanced sophistication the actual human motives that drive the people who try to make change and the bureaucratic and political realities that make it difficult for those motives to achieve their ends. So you have in this none of the white political actors who are in elected office in Yonkers who are on the correct side of this fight and trying to get this housing built are doing it for any kind of 
pure political motive. It's all, all for self-interest, at least in these first few episodes. And you get a real sense. I think you're right, Steve, that you, you get this portrait of what how power actually functions that is both revealing and depressing. Is there a way that this show or the, or the direction that it seems to be going can help us shed light on the broader conversation we're having nationally? Or, or is it just resonant because of it? I, I think so. It was very interesting to me, to me to see in the show. You know, you have two very specific instances where politicians aren't necessarily acting for you know for the better angels. And one, the um, mayor pre Oscar Isaac, the the Mary Meet in the beginning of the show, adopts an integration plan and asks each council member to take some units into their districts um, as a way to, of spreading the political pain. Which, just from actually a planning point of view, like that's you know spreading out affordable housing and integrating it into existing housing is a good idea. And then you have in the second episode when Oscar Isaac's character, the new mayor, realizes that there's no real hope for an appeal and that they're just going to have to do this, um, he decides to plow forward. And in this particular moment, I think, was it last yesterday evening or this morning, um, uh, New York Magazine published the video from Hillary Clinton's meeting with Black Lives Matter activists in New Hampshire. And those activists were pressing Clinton to essentially um, show that her heart has changed on issues relating to the war on drugs and to incarceration. And she refused to budge. But she did say that she was working very hard to um, find policy solutions to address their concerns. And I think that I think the show speaks to that dynamic in a very important way, which is that Ultimately, it doesn't really matter what the politicians believe in their hearts of hearts. What matters is what they're trying to do. And if you can create an incentive structure by which politicians have to do a certain thing or they find it in their best interest to do a certain thing, then that, that for me at least, is as good um, or even better than changing their minds. We should talk a little mm. bit about Keener and about some of the other performances in the show before we adjourn, I think. Most notably, Oscar Isaac, who whose name was bandied about by Dana in her knockdown dragout fight with you, Steve, for who's, uh, for whether there are any great actors anymore. So I will, I will raise the Dana banner from Tokyo. Does uh, the Oscar Isaac performance in this lend any heft to Dana's claim that he's a, a great American actor working today? You know, before he went into politics or as he was going into gubernatorial politics, but before he went into presidential politics, it was said of Ronald Reagan by Jack Warner, the studio head under whom Reagan had had his Hollywood career. He said, Ronald Reagan for president? Question mark. No. He said, Jimmy Stewart for president, Ronald Reagan for best friend. He was very dubious about his... uh, Very dubious about his chances in that regard turned out, of course, to be spectacularly wrong. Similarly, I would say Channing Tatum for leading man, Oscar Isaac for God. (laughs) I'm not sure I know what that means, but okay. There are almost no limits to how much I now currently worship Oscar Isaac (laughs) as an actor. Yeah, I mean, I do. There's been a bunch of people saying that he's um, he's a young Pacino. And I think taking this kind of New York-based working-class role might be part of that conversation. And I find myself bristling against it because I'm so unenamored of Pacino's late career that I feel like people who are calling him a young Pacino are condemning him to that trajectory. To me, the actor who can really gleefully pull off the actual charm and likability and the deep resulting desire to be liked that animates a small-time politician who's who's beginning to hit the big time is just great. I mean, it, it's really amazing to watch. And the fact that the same actor who produced that performance also played the menacing scientist overlord slash 
insanely great dancer that we saw and discussed recently in Ex Machina, (laughs) that those two performances could emanate from the same brain and body in the same year is totally thrilling. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think to be a great American actor, film actor, you need a kind of fearful, fearsome Mercury at the center of your personality. And he has that. In addition to, unlike Pacino, I think the ability to disappear into a wide variety of roles and to have those two things together means we'll be watching him, God willing, for the next 40 years, 30 years, whatever it is, 25 years. I can't do the math. uh, You keep chopping decades of his life. (laughs) I wish I had done it the other direction. I don't know how old he is. How old is he for the next 35 years? Well, you just Um, called him a god, so maybe, maybe he's immortal and we'll just be watching him forever. Off into infinities heaped upon other infinities we will be watching oscar isaac okay but in this instance tell us what you think of him and what you think of show me a hero the new david simon uh drama on hbo you can find us at facebook.com slash culture fest jamel Bowie, the new chief political correspondent of slate jamel Bowie, thank you so much for coming on the show as always you are the ideal guest <laughs> thank you so much for having me All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor. Julia Turner, what do we have? The Culture Gab Fest is sponsored this week by Harry's Razors. I'm going to turn it over to you, Steve, because you can explain how you've been beguiled and seduced by these dazzling blades. You know, this is the rare subject which even I can't overcomplicate, Julia Turner. But let let me see if I can try. Um, You know, it used to be that you had to fight through phalanxes of employees and Lucite guardian windows in order to get at razors. But the biggest thing you were fighting was oligopoly, uh, the enemy of fair pricing. Um, you, You can't put a price on smooth skin and presentability. Julia, I think this is, if I stand for one thing, it's going out in public presentably. And um, (laughs) I was hoping you would throw that right back into my face with a laugh and you didn't disappoint. (laughs) All right. So I'll modify that slightly and say when I give one wit about going out in public presentably, the first thing I do is I grab my Harry's razor and I run it lovingly over my uh, cheekbones. And um, the truth is you shouldn't pay what you've been paying for razors. It really is a crime. And um, a company has figured out how to do an end around uh, around all the forces uh, in the supply chain that prevent you from getting a fairly priced uh, razor. And that company is Harry's. I became a customer before they became a sponsor. Uh, I've done nothing but re-up with total joy. They don't give me any special deals because we plump for them on air. But it's terrific. It's you, you can choose what kind of a plan you want. Get razors delivered with whatever frequency suits your lifestyle best. And uh, it's super, super high quality uh, razors at what you always suspected you ought to be paying for them. So I am a very, very, very happy customer of Harry's. And uh, if you're a razor consumer, you should be too. Yeah, they have a special deal for our listeners. Their starter kit is just $15. That includes the razor, three blades, and your choice of Harry's shave cream or foaming shave gel. We'll let Steve retain a bit of mystery as to which he prefers. Uh, And you can get $5 (laughs) off that purchase with the code CULTURE. So go to harrys.com now, and Harry's will give you $5 off if you type in the promo code CULTURE with your first purchase. Start shaving smarter today. Julia, you're the boss. Let me just pause you for one second. You're the boss. Can't we change the secret code word? Uh, from culture to oligopoly. <laughs> I will look into that. As the boss, aren't you on the phone with Harry every day? 
<laughs> well, it's more like we lean back in leather chairs and smoke cigars together. <laughs> That we slice we slice off the tips with a with a you know a disassembled Harry's razor blade, <laughs> and you do the evil laugh. Okay, I guess we should move on. <laughs> straight out of Compton is a pretty straightforward band biopic about a band that was anything but straightforward. Counting Easy E, Dr. Dre, and Ice Cube as its principal members, N.W.A. revolutionized American music, taking rap away from its East Coast origins and even further away from its origins as a novelty music and focusing it on Southern California gang life under the eye and sometimes the boot of an increasingly militarized police force. The film is directed by F. Gary Gray. It stars O'Shea Jackson as Ice Cube, Corey Hawkins as Dr. Dre, Jason Mitchell as Easy e and Paul Giamatti as Jerry Heller, the band's manager. Let's listen to a clip. Like y'all just got a snapshot of how Americans really feel. We gave the people a voice. We gave the people truth. Yeah, but your songs, they glamorize the lifestyle of gangs, guns, drugs. Our art is a reflection of our reality. What you see when you go outside your door? I know what I see. And it ain't glamorous. You get AKs from Russia and cocaine from Colombia. It ain't none of us got a passport, so yeah. <laughs> might want to check the source. Yeah, next question. Will you be more careful about what you say, how you say it? No. Probably not. No. Mm-hmm. Wow. Freedom of speech includes rap music, right? But we exercise in our First Amendment, as far as I'm concerned. And the government wrote that. <laughs> All right. Well, um, John Swansburg, no one is going to believe me when I say this, but it's true. We ran a very, very high-power black box computer simulation program that then diagrammed out who can speak authoritatively about the Grateful Dead and NWA. And we came up with one name in the database, and that was John Swansburg. I'm very proud to be that person. Welcome to the show, John Swansburg, who is deputy editor of Slate.com. Always a pleasure to be here. John, let's begin by talking about the movie as a movie. Did you like it? I did. I liked it quite a bit. Um, I should say that I am someone who really did adore this music and still does uh, really like the music. It it sort of came out uh, when I was in seventh and eighth grade. It sort of had a profound effect on me uh, at a formative moment in my life. So I was disposed to like this film because I I remember the sort of shock of of, uh, hearing this music for the first time and and, uh, the effect it had on me. But I, I also just think it's it's a it's a well-made movie. It does a really good job of telling uh, the story, uh, the, the unlikely story of how Ice Cube, Eazy-E, and Dr. Dre uh, got together and recorded an album that did, as you as you said, uh, change the uh, trajectory of hip hop and and pop culture writ large. I feel like the movie sort of trails off in its second half and loses some of the momentum that it gains in the first. But I was exhilarated throughout the the first uh, half of this movie uh, as I watched. Uh, this band sort of come together, recognize its talents, and put them together to create straight out of Compton this this kind of uh, paradigm shanking album. Julia, were you uh, similarly exhilarated? I really enjoyed this movie. I mean, th- you know, this movie is produced by Ice Cube's company. Dr. Dre was very involved. Easy E's widow, I think, was involved. Mm-hmm. Um, although you would not know that from the fact that at the very end of the movie, one of the cliffhangers is like. Did uh, Easy E, who died of AIDS, transmit HIV to his wife and unborn child? And the movie just never answers the question, which is a sign of general disregard for the female characters within it, even the ones who are still producing it. But, you know, like another movie we talked about was the Beyonce produced Beyonce movie. Like, you know, this is a bunch of veterans 
rosy view of their origins. But, you know, I didn't know very much about the origins. I'm happy to take their version of it. I'm sure there are other versions as well. And and the movie did what I think a lot of great movies and great biopics can do, which is just pique your curiosity more broadly about that time. And I also think the performances are quite good in the, the people working on casting for the film managed to find people that both had an ability to physically seem to embody the actual people. The, the actual physical resemblance varies, but they they do a very good job of kind of capturing the essence of the characters that they're playing. And, and of course, we should mention that uh, Ice Cube is played by the son of Ice Cube, so the physical resemblance there is somewhat genetic. But um, there, there's just there's great performances, I think, from from particularly the three leads. Yeah, I completely agree. I should say that this album dropped in my 50th year of grad school, John Swansburg. So <laughs> it came to me at sort of a vast a cultural and racial distance, uh, speaking frankly. And so it's always been interesting to me as history, how what was generated as b-boy culture in the Bronx in the 70s, you know, evolved and exploded, you know, as gangsta in on the West Coast in the late 80s and early 90s. Like, I kind of get it at history, but this movie just blasts you in the face with the music and the emotions and the social reality behind it in a way that I found really, really bracing and very convincing. A couple of things that struck me particularly. The first is there's an early scene in the movie where it's suggested, to my mind, a little too distantly that Ice Cube is the most sort of socially integrated into white middle-class culture of the people who form the group. And that this is a precarious fact for him. He's on a school bus with other black kids getting bussed from what looks like a kind of suburban L.A. high school. And one of his friends starts to ridicule via gestures a bunch of gangbangers driving in a car alongside the school bus. And they're, you know, the kid is laughing and he thinks he's going to get away with it. And in fact, what happens is they get pulled over by these guys who cut off the bus and they, they turn out to be either Bloods or Crips. I can't remember which. They're older. They're not 18-year-olds at all. They look closer to 30. They, they board the bus with their guns. And the guy goes right up to this kid who's been, like, you know, kind of ridiculing him with these gestures. And he basically puts the gun to the kid's head and says, who's the, who's the tough guy now? And he terrifies the living shit out of the kids on this bus. John, what I loved about that scene is how I think perceptive it was to how utterly vulnerable a would-be sensitive kid like Ice Cube is growing up in a kind of Hobbesian jungle and how he's struggling to find a mode of self-expression that does justice to just how precarious his own existence is. And I wished that there were more of that in the movie. Maybe that was a little quick. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that, that those scenes sort of setting up who these young men were and how they became the artists who created Straight Outta Compton would have been great. There's a, The movie sort of airs on the side of showing what became of them after they became notorious and famous and gives, I think, too much airtime to less interesting material about contract disputes. But that scene was really great, uh, I agree, and, and I think in part because it gave some real emotional and socioeconomic depth to, to Ice Cube, who I think a lot of people who go to see this movie will think of NWA as purely glamorizing a gangster lifestyle. And this scene suggested that 
the young Ice Cube didn't necessarily always see it in its most glamorous light. That was a terrifying scene in which he was terrified. Uh, and so it mm-hmm. gave um, a real uh, dimension to the work that he ultimately would create that I, I didn't necessarily even have uh, going into this movie. And I'm someone who uh, adores Ice Cube. Can I speak up on mm-hmm. behalf of the contract disputes? <laughs> Please. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't know really anything about the history of the band and its dissolution. And, you know, apart from knowing all of the names and songs associated with it in an ambient, I've heard them way. I hadn't followed any of this history. And I do think that this question of what it took for this music to break through to become something that was the change the way pop music sounded and that the billboard chart sounded and became something that America more broadly thought of as as a big American sound did have to do with the way this group from the small, segregated, deeply poor you know, ravaged by the police community, like connected with this broader business world. And we see that in this film through the relationship that they develop with Jerry Heller, who's played, I think, in not great fashion by Paul Giamatti, who played a very, who had a very similar role in a weird way in Love and Mercy, where he also played a scenery chewing malevolent music manager type. Um, I think he needs to stop taking those roles. I love Paul Giamatti, but the kind of like malevolent gerbil face that he does is just not, I'm done with that. But apart from his his performance, which I I would have been interested to see someone else in that role, I do think that question of, of seeing them navigate this, the business world, the contractual relationships among them, who were the actual talents, who had the real power, who was creating the sound, and seeing them by turns find their own personal autonomy and authority within this business that they've broken into and the different means that they used to do that, to me, actually provided a lot of emotional drama within the film. I I liked a lot of that stuff. Mm. All right. Well, listen, Julia, before we go any further with this movie, we have to talk about a big subject that surrounds it, which is misogyny, the misogyny of the group and the absence of a serious depiction of its misogyny in the movie. Yeah, well, it's depicted. (laughs) (laughs) Without much critical distance. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's in there. Yeah, I mean, I can't uh, say that I adore the references to or treatment of women in the music, and I don't think that this movie is particularly reflective about that, which may or may not reflect the evolution or lack thereof of the producers and the the people at the center of it. You know, there's a lot of booties shaking. There's, um, as you noted in your review of the film, John, a pretty grotesque scene where a woman's naked humiliation is treated as a droll punchline, which to me seemed... um, you know, sort of representative of the fact that this was just not a, this group of people and group of musicians were facing a bunch of other concerns that took precedence for them. And honestly, given everything that was going on in their lives as portrayed in this film, like, that is, seems fine. You know, like, not I, I don't love it, but it's, it's, it's these people's portrait of their own coming up and what was important to them and what's still important to them. And, you know, radical sexual gender equality or even a bare modicum of respect seemed not to be top priorities and like okay yeah. noted <laughs> i think that's true i mean the music the music is really uh, awful when it comes to women and i think that one of the scariest parts about that is that that was 
for some re- listeners a bug and for some listeners a feature. I think for for some people the transgressiveness and the sort of lewdness was part of its appeal, and the movie doesn't wrestle with that at all. I mean, I think one interesting thing I I read in Jeff Chang's great history of hip hop can't stop won't stop in writing my review is that actually a lot of the um, initial boycotts of Straight Outta Compton didn't just come from say the Christian right or the sort of uh, usual suspects. They were college hip hop progressive radio stations that banned this album because they just couldn't deal with it the way it treated women. But the other reason I think a lot of people have reacted to this film the way they have and, and sort of pointed out uh, its its misogyny or its lack of wrestling with the band's misogyny is that in addition to having uh, a sort of Neanderthalish approach to women in the music, the members, uh, specifically Dr. Dre, have a nasty history of actual assault against women. Uh, there was a, a notorious incident in which Dr. Dre assaulted uh, hip-hop journalist D. Barnes, that is not in the film. So, you know, the movie really just sort of, you know, it just doesn't touch that stuff. And I think that that is problematic. Yeah. But, I mean, one thing that uh, is also true about this film is that it arrives in the year after Ferguson. And so, uh, you know, I think the misogyny in some ways is overshadowed for some viewers by the shocking and tragic uh, pertinence of the portraiture of the LAPD's behavior uh, and disregard for black life. Uh you know, and and how that still still resonates for us today. Uh, that part still comes mm-hmm. through uh, really strongly and in a way that affected me viscerally in a way I didn't necessarily anticipate. I, you know, "Fuck the Police" is not a song I have in heavy rotation, although I still love it. But seeing it in the context that produced it, as someone who just went through the year since Michael Brown was killed, had real power. Yeah, I I, mm-hmm. I found myself moved by that too. Mm. All right. Well, an intense uh, movie watching experience. Uh, go see it. And then let us know what you thought of it at facebook.com slash culturefest. John Swansburg. By the way, I should say you stole my freaking endorsement this week, the David Chang book. But whatever. I'm going <laughs> to I'm gonna soldier ahead um, uh, anyway. But thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, I always love it. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we have? This episode of Slate's Culture Gabfest is brought to you by Braintree, code for easy online payments. If you're a mobile developer, check out Braintree. It's a solution used by companies like Uber, Airbnb, and Living Social. It makes the payment experiences in these apps seamless, and now you can add a similar experience to your own app. With excellent customer service and simple integration, Braintree gets you ready to receive payments quickly. And Braintree's continuous support plus fast payouts means you'll be prepared as your company grows from your first dollar to your billionth. Braintree gives you support for all payment types your customers might want, so start accepting PayPal, Apple Pay, cards, and more, all with a single integration. To learn more and for your first $50,000 in transactions fee-free, go to braintreepayments.com slash culture. All right, Steve, what's next? Thanks, Julia. Okay, moving on. This past Saturday, the New York Times published a massive indictment of Amazon.com as a white-collar workplace nightmare. The company says the Times is, quote, conducting a little-known experiment in how far it can push white-collar workers, redrawing the boundaries of what is acceptable. Another choice pull clip from the piece, which is built upon over 100 interviews, had a employee saying, nearly every person I worked with I saw cry at their desk. It includes such unlovely vignettes as a woman uh, being told after giving birth to a stillborn child that she had to make sure to focus on her job. Employees, according to the piece, are on call 24-7, expected to hit back 
write back on midnight emails within minutes or quicker, and to spy on one another's work habits. Jeff Bezos has said in no uncertain terms, I strongly believe that anyone working in a company that really is like the one described in the New York Times would be crazy to stay. I know I would leave such a company. I know I would too. Allison Benedict is news director of Slate. Is that what it's like to work for Julia Turner? It's just too easy to go for that joke. (laughs) Thank you for having me. (laughs) (laughs) Allison, let's just start with this as a piece of journalism. What did you make of it? I feel like the question out of this piece is just, do you believe it or not? And I am somewhat skeptical on the specifics and yet totally believe that Amazon is a terrible place to work. We already know that it treats its blue-collar employees terribly. There have been several pieces about working conditions in the um, factories, people passing out with no air conditioning and ambulances waiting outside to whisk them off to the hospital. We also know that Amazon's ultimate goal is to cater to our every whim, which does not seem like a worthy goal. And uh, as Matt Iglesias pointed out on Vox, we know that Amazon isn't profitable, which means that Bezos has to show investors that he's doing absolutely everything he can to drive his company, his employees to profitability. So all that together, even without this article, would lead me to believe it's a terrible place to work. I don't know if the few cases of truly horrible treatment of employees, which you um, talked about in your introduction, Steve, are the exception or the rule. But even if they are the exception, it's not hard to buy that the overall culture at this place is grueling and harsh and that bosses are assholes. Now, I wonder what you guys think, because in some respects, I appreciate the honesty of the way things work there. You know, it sounds like a lot of the expectations are very out in the open and catered lunches and other perks of the sweeter, kinder tech companies like Google and Twitter are all just management strategies designed to get worker bees to work harder and longer hours. Bezos apparently has a different management strategy, but the goal is the same and the workload's the same, uh, you know, whether you can drop your dog off at some doggy daycare <laughs> place space or not. <laughs> Well, yeah, I, I will say, and I, I recognize that I'm the boss person in this room, so maybe all of my comments on a piece about white-collar workplace culture should be taken with, like, 10 lumps of salt. But I, you know, I think Jody Cantor has done amazing work covering workplace culture in general over the last year. I think the piece that she did about the time-shiftable work shifts at Starbucks was a really devastating portrait of how a large chunk of our workforce functions and how disempowered they are and how it ruins their lives and the lives of their children and their education. Like, I trust her as a reporter, and I think she's done great work on this beat. This story, like, did not quite add up to me. I don't know. I did not feel... I felt like the really devastating details here were the ones around how a company like Amazon handles sick leave, maternity leave, and kind of emotional distress in its employees. And it seemed like there were multiple examples, including a few named examples of really terrible treatment around those issues. And a piece that had focused narrowly on that issue or on how issues like that have a particularly heavy burden on women with some reporting around women in the workforce there and advancement rates and the gender situation is at Amazon feels to me like it might have made for a more focused investigation. But the broader set of claims... It just seemed really anecdotal to me. And you may be, it may be totally true that Amazon is a terrible place to work or is a more terrible place to work than other big tech companies. But, you know, I, I basically came away feeling like, okay, so Jeff Bezos has, a, as you say, like a different management strategy. It's perhaps more frank in ways that can feel cruel. And there are many things about it that may need reform. But it, it just, I, I don't know. I didn't, it didn't quite, I didn't totally feel that the piece proved its case. It didn't, it never broke out 
the retention of white-collar workers versus the retention of the warehouse workers who, as Allison noted, have been documented to be horribly treated. You know, I think it, it, I didn't think it was the strongest such investigation. And I think it has caused a huge national conversation because the issues that it raises around what work-life balance should be for white-collar workers, especially white-collar workers of the sort who read articles in the New York Times when they get push notifications on their phones over the weekend and then discuss them on social media platforms. Terrible like, use of push notifications. These are the <laughs> these are the issues that everybody talks about. This is what mm. white-collar people want to talk about. When you do a big flashpoint issue about what white-collar office culture should be, white-collar office workers who struggle with work-life balance because of how hard they have to work to make the money that they need to make to support their families and how they reconcile the ideas of wanting to have fulfilling jobs and wanting to have a fulfilling family life and how to balance all those things. It's very difficult. And anytime you write any sort of article that touches on that issue, you can generate a huge conversation. Yeah, no, I think absolutely one has to separate out the will to believe a piece like this from whether or not one really believes it. I mean, I tend to believe it, but being agnostic about that for a second, I think first, and we've done this, the conversation needs to be Ehrenreicht right from the get-go. Uh, I'm, I'm name-checking Barbara Ehrenreich, <laughs> uh, the great nickel and dime. Um, the working poor and the uh, blue-collar workforce have it way worse than the management level, uh, especially, apparently, at a company like Amazon. There's been a ton of reporting on that. We've uh, referenced it. But second, there are a bunch of interesting questions. I mean, how endemic is this to the highly compensated, uh, semi-glamorous white-collar workforce uh, how typical of it is is it of the American corporate workplace? So, for example, law firms. You know, how deep does the pathology of workaholism uh, go and extend beyond Amazon? And then, secondly, I think it's important, or thirdly, it's important to note that we've kind of all of us created this monster, this successor to Walmart, right? Which is the the octopus. I mean, it just insinuates itself everywhere. Um, and according to only three imperatives, right? Cheapness and convenience for the consumer pleasing the bloodless abstraction known as the market and making its own upper management rich. And so long as it satisfies those three imperatives, it's not clear what else we ask of it. I mean, we don't even really, Allison, you uh, said this, it's, we don't even ask this freaking thing to make money. Um, so it's just, it speaks to a bizarre moment in the culture in a weird way that we can live with shoving deflation up the supply, back up the supply chain you know, that we can live with warehouse conditions that are apparently quite inhumane. And now it looks like white collar conditions or office conditions that are the same way. So long as we satisfy those three imperatives, and it's important to recognize those don't emanate from Jeff Bezos, how much, uh, however much they may flatter his ego in his bank account. I mean, I want to challenge Allison's notion that trying to please the customer all the time is a stupid thing to do. Like, Amazon has built an insane revolution in how retail works that is very impressive. It may not be worthwhile. It may be, you know, and I think when I think about the money I spend on Amazon and I think about how its warehouse workers are treated, I feel that I should not spend the money that I spend on Amazon and Amazon. And I do spend money there anyway, some money, because it's just so fucking convenient. And they've created, they've they've solved a set of problems that no other company has solved. Like, you know, not to use the word without scare quotes around it, but they've like innovated in the retail space. I mean, sincerely, in okay. ways that are impressive and useful to people. But I like, I, I will continue to feel bad about spending money there because of the way they treat their warehouse workers. I do not feel bad about spending money there because a bunch of very educated white collar workers who have lots of choices about what, what jobs they have have ended up in this environment where the office culture is hostile in a way that may or may not have been reformed. Like, I don't know. I just... I, I, well, okay, so wait, two things there. One, I, I mean, I would com- completely buy... You don't, have to, I, you don't have to argue with me about what what they've done is, of course, impressive and very, very useful, but it is not 
worthwhile. And I mean, <laughs> it is not. I mean, if we read a similar story, but it was about like a cancer research center, how would we feel? We would feel differently, right? We would feel right. like, okay, this is like, in, to some degree, like worth the long hours. I, but I do agree with you that like Steve's description of the white collar workplace there is inhumane seems a bit extreme to me. Like it's not. It's It sounds bad. People have to work really hard. They make a lot of money. They make choices that, you know, to work there. They can leave and get other great jobs with that on their resume. Like it's not, they're not, the work-life balance issue is a real issue, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't call those conditions inhumane. No. Okay. Look, let me make my point a little finer, which is that presumably at the upper reaches of the white collar workforce, the, the labor force is very fluid. It's very mobile. If you don't like a job, you can move. It's one of the great privileges of, of being a member of you know the workforce elite. That said, that raises a secondary question, which is how endemic are the pathologies of workaholism and how hard are they to escape if you want to work at that level? I mean, it may not make enough of a difference to go from Amazon to Microsoft or to Apple if there's a, you know, a type A monster uh, uh, driving you at every place and the expectation is that your family life will um, suffer no matter what. But that leads into a much larger point, which is that, Julia, yeah, of course this thing is massively convenient to you, the end user. Um, the, the, the larger social problem is that we don't know how to socially cost anything. We know how to cost a book or um, you know, a flameless candle or a fill-in-the-blank, a lawn chair to the end user. But we don't know how to cost the social totality that allows you to buy it at what feels like a steep discount to what it would have been at a mom and pop store on Main Street America. That social cost is being borne in a number of disparate places, so it's not always easy to aggregate it and put a number on it. But it's very, very, very real. So I, I just I, I can't I can't abide by the argument that that because it's a revolution in how we consume and it's pervasive that it can't be, you know, openly derided and hopefully contained. And also because it's this tech company that, you know, we all interface with constantly and that is, you know, in Seattle and has has some like, you know, sort of sweetness to it or, or so we think, we don't see it as a Goldman or like as a horrible, yeah, like you said, Steve, earlier, as a horrible law firm. But like, I, I don't think you would have trouble kind of seeing Goldman Sachs is evil for similar Yeah, reasons. and Allison, I take that even a step further and say that because of totally arbitrary set of facts about it as a business, uh, the market doesn't chasten it for losing money. I mean, the moment eventually is going to have to arrive where the market, the stock market, is going to punish Amazon.com for being unable to make a buck, right? And and it's very interesting to think about the social, i.e. the totally non-economic reasons why it gets a free pass on that score. Okay, let me just break from that and ask Julia as the only one here who is responsible for fostering a workplace culture. As Allison, we are. stares into your eyes. <laughs> Does any part of you wish you could be or that Slate could be harsher or harder driving in some way when you sort of when you I know you don't you don't want to emulate Amazon, <laughs> I assume, but we have a workplace that is far in the other direction in terms of like being very open to people having lives outside of work and and sort of intentionally transparent about and we have a slack channel where people like say where they are at all times so that people know like i know that julia my boss sometimes has to take her kids to the doctor so then i feel comfortable taking my kids to the doctor and we all tell each other all the time so that everyone feels comfortable like having these outside lives do you ever wish well i mean right but it's balanced out like also i 
flagged you on our internal chat system at like 10 p.m. on Saturday night to be like, why didn't somebody do a great aggregating post about this Amazon article on Saturday afternoon? And then I WhatsApped Jessica Winter and was like, why did Julia just slack me at 10 at night? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, you know, like, and I think it's in part that's complicated by the news, right? Like we necessarily have a somewhat 24-7 obligation to have our attention on the world and then have to make decisions. You as the news director have to make decisions all the time about when to mobilize people in off hours beyond the resources that we have already allocated to cover the world. And so I feel like that's part of the balance, right? We have a very flexible and open workplace culture, but also we make huge demands of everybody at Slate because we want to do excellent journalism on all things all the time. And that the kind of fluidity and flexibility during the workplace hours is is part of how I buy your fealty to Slate when I still right, it's em- a strategy. when I email you sometimes at at 10 p.m. on a Saturday. And you did email me right back. <laughs> I would have been all right if you hadn't emailed me right back. But you I did. wasn't doing anything. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I think the broader question is that as you know, the workplace, the American workplace requires workers of all stripes to be more productive. And the economics of American life require almost all families to have two incomes in order to make ends meet. There is just this, you know, for all that it's like, don't cry for me, white collar worker, like, it is hard. It is hard to raise a family at that level of the economic spectrum as well. And it is much less hard than it is if you have less money. But for all that I'm sort of saying, like, I I won't be weeping for the white-collar Amazon workers in Seattle, like, the flashpointness of this article and articles like it is very real because I, I feel it in my own life. It's it, The tensions are very apparent in the lives of all of our colleagues at Slate and anybody we've ever talked to about how they feel to be a human in 2015. Like, the broader economic landscape makes it difficult. And, and the political landscape, the fact that there is, you know, that education is... Sometimes you have to choose between price and excellence or that child care is so disastrously handled in this country or that health care and benefits is so disastrously handled. Like the, there are structural, political structural realities that make life hard for people at various levels on the economic spectrum. And that's part of why these conversations resonate. Yeah. I mean, look, the, the fact that American aspiration is bound up in American fearfulness is a fact of American culture. Not of, It's not an ironclad law of economics, and it's not pervasive across first world high-end workforces. And, and if you actually look at the economic data, growth rates, productivity rates, productivity increases are not as tied to a culture of um, pervasive insecurity and workaholism. As, uh, as the implicit argument, I think, goes. Yeah, no, I mean, I remember us having this conversation when we read one of the Stieg Larsson books, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, for this podcast. One thing that's striking about those books is all of those investigators go on vacation all the time. And it's just unremarked upon. But they're like, well, I'm hot on the heels of the killer. I might be killed by a hacker at any moment. The hacker clan is after me. And then it's like, then like Anna Langstrom filled in for Blort Blumstrom because he was going to his cottage for six weeks in August. And then it just like rolls forward, like even though it's this life and death case. And you're like, right, right. A lot of this is cultural. <laughs> like the notion that an American detective would be like, pause, I got to go to the beach for a month. <laughs> yeah, I got to go to the Amalfi Coast. Yeah, the killer will still be still be there when I get back. Yeah. Or someone else can cycle no, in true. and handle my investigation for me. Like it, it they're, you know, we're a little bit the like fish in the fish in the aquarium. Like we can't quite see the water that we're swimming in. 
Yeah. And you don't, oh, anyway, whatever. This is one of my hobby horses and I will now dismount. All right. Well, the piece is called Inside Amazon Wrestling Big Ideas in a Bruising Workplace. You can find it at nytimes.com and you can find us at facebook.com slash culturefest. Come and tell us about your workplace nightmares or um, dreams. All right. Well, moving on. Now is the moment in our show where we endorse Allison. Thank you for sticking around. What do you got? Thanks for having me. Okay. As the host of my own podcast, I know that sometimes it's impossible to come up with something good. And I think I've recommended like eating a sandwich before. (laughs) But this week I have something that I really, really want to recommend. It's a recent episode of This American Life, a recent episode, the July 31st episode entitled The Problem We All Live With Part One and featuring the reporting of Nicole Hannah Jones about school integration is up there as really one of the most difficult and important hours you will spend with earbuds in your ears or however you listen to that show. So the episode makes the argument that the only thing we can do to fix massive racial inequalities in education is the one thing we're not talking about at all, which is school desegregation. Hannah Jones tells this story of one girl who was desperate to get out of her zone school, Normandy, in Normandy, Missouri, which is actually where Michael Brown graduated from. The school has been on probation with the state for 15 years. So for 15 years, the school's, the state has been saying, like, you're failing and we're threatening you. You're going to, like, if you don't shape up, we're going to pull your accreditation. And then it just, like, let it sit there like that for 15 years. So this girl's mother tried to get her into a better public school. And the other schools, other public schools would only take her if if she paid, which was like $15,000 a year, which she couldn't afford to do. But then the state finally pulled Normandy's accreditation, which triggered this little-known Missouri law that says if a school district is unaccredited, it has to pay for its students to get bused to another district. So that's what happened. And a 1,000 of them did, 1,000 of them. So they left Normandy. They took the bus to attend the better and much, much whiter school 30 miles away. And the really, like, the grueling part of this episode, which is, like, the dark and disgusting heart of it, takes place at an overflow crowd school board meeting at the white school, which the local NPR station recorded at the time, as, like, white parent after white parent goes up to the microphone and insists this isn't about race, it's about protecting our property values or our children's test scores or whatever other thing they could say that was really just all about keeping the black kids out of their bubble and denying black kids a decent education and thinking that their own white kids deserve better. They all protested what was happening. I'm not going to go any further. You guys should just listen to the episode. Um, But like so many other things this year, it made me evaluate my own racism and privilege and priorities. And it's just like a phenomenally power, powerful hour of audio. Also so opposite given everything we talked about on today's show. Julia, what do you have? Uh, My endorsement involves animals big, fantastical animals, so it's it's a change of tone. Eat um, a sandwich? <laughs> I, I could go for a sandwich. Um, I want to endorse a book that actually my husband had growing up and that we have reintroduced to our children and then started exploring other, other works by this author. Uh, it's a book called Giants of Land, Sea, and Air, Past and Present by David Peters. It was a Sierra Club book. It came out in the, I think, 80s or early 90s. Uh, and David Peters did a number of other books in these series. It is a gigantic, illustrated, insanely detailed, not really written for children kind of coffee table book 
about fantastical creatures. So the Giants one is all around anything that was ever enormous. Um, and it has these very funny illustrations of like 80s type, like an 80s type couple walking through for scale and all the illos. So they're like wearing very 80s like jogging visors and striped pants, like going past like the Gallimimus dinosaur, whatever it is going going past. And it includes like current huge creatures of the deep and huge creatures of the past and huge creatures of various continents and weird looking pterodactyls with you know beaks as big as this room and it's just sort of fantastically illustrated and i recommend them for adults and children they are great Mm. all right well my endorsement i have two this week the first is i'm going to endorse slate.com for hiring laura miller i can't believe it's taking me this long to do it Uh, laura is one of a handful of book critics who are able to write about literature and popular literature and do it on deadline and sacrifice nothing to depth clarity brilliance um, she's just she's just a tr- she and Dwight Garner uh, both do it and they both do it beautifully. She is just a truly great book critic and uh, just a wonderful person and a wonderful thinker and an amazing asset for Slate to have acquired. So kudos. And the second is it came up earlier in the segment. There are f- so few good histories of hip hop. In fact, you could even argue there's really only one. Can't Stop, Won't Stop, A History of the Hip Hop Generation is by Jeff Chang. It came out in 2005. It tells the history stretching back not only to the b-boy culture of the Bronx in the 70s, but further back to Kingston, Jamaica, where a lot of the sounds and the ways of making sounds from pre-existing recordings were born. I mean, Lee Scratch Perry, on and on. People know this history way better than I do. But it's it's a really, really well-told, widely inclusive, socially perceptive book. It really is about not only the music and what makes the music so compelling, but the social geography that created it principally of, of, of racial separation. Um, and it strikes to the heart of that tragedy while celebrating this um, art form. I mean, really kind of dominant, maybe the dominant innovative art form of, uh, of my lifetime. So that is a freaking incredible book and highly recommended for those who haven't read it. All right. Um, thanks, Allison. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Julia. Thank you. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster on iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Twitter feed, as always, is at Slate Cult Fest. For Julia Turner, Allison Benedict, Jamel Bowie, and John Swansburg, I'm Steve Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. Straight out of Compton, crazy motherfucker named Ice Cube. From the gang called niggas with attitudes. Hi, I'm Richard Deitch, host of the Sports Illustrated Media Podcast. Hey, everyone. I'm Maggie Gray, host of The Gray Area. Hi, I'm Ted Keith, host of the SI Vault Podcast. For more than 60 years, Sports Illustrated has championed its brand of quality sports journalism. Now SI has a new partnership, one that helps us tell the stories that matter to your life through today's mobile channels. So as of today, all 11 Sports Illustrated podcasts are joining the Panoply Network with more new titles on the way soon. Visit SI.com slash podcasts for more info.